episode number 85. Stand-up comedian and comedy works guru, Deacon Gray, is in the springs. I didn't get it. I'm dumb. You kids and your long jokes. I'm just going to do this until I die. Uh, I had a pinto joke. Oh, my God. I had a pinto joke. Oh, man. Like, if you'd said it like this, that probably would have worked. This plus this equals ha-ha. Right, Deacon Gray, we are doing this thing. Right, I need to ask you. So I, you're like uh, fucking into character. There's never really any. Uh, I've listened to your podcast, and this, uh, where are the Negro artists? Is what I'm asking. Where, where are the Negroes? Troy was the closest I could get, <laughs> and that's not very close at all, really. <laughs> all right, so man, first things first. I got to tell you, I wanted something like for for posterity. You, um, back in the olden days when I was doing comedy. You are a tremendous mentor to me, oh. and uh, I don't know that I ever had an opportunity to, to thank you and to let you know how, how important you were in my comedy career, mm. and that's sincere and no, yeah. no BS. Um, I think your role at, at Comedy Works as the new talent coordinator is either misunderstood or underappreciated or whatever. So at any rate, I just wanted it is to, what it is. Yeah, and I just wanted to pass that along. Well, that's, that's, in, in that's, all sincerity. That's very sweet of you. Although it's uh, it's it's hilarious. Like when you say like uh, my comedy career is devoted to you. Back when I was doing comedy. <laughs> <laughs> well, the fact that I got out clearly had nothing to do with you. That was uh, oh, many other things. No, I'm well. I'm glad I was able to help for the period that uh, you know whatever well and I think and I'm, I didn't get you you know I didn't want to sit down with you just to blow smoke up your ass for for a half I, an hour but I'm not a, I'm not a good compliment guy so. well and I think you know anybody who's in the Denver scene and I think even outside of the Denver scene and and has seen the progress and what has gone on in that town for the past 10 or 15 years I, yeah. I do think that you have um, a big part of that there's a tremendous amount of talent no doubt about it oh yeah but i think comedy works and you specifically with how you manage that new talent I, uh, process is i think we're 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 good at providing opportunities for people who are looking for that sort of outlet uh we're we're very good at um parceling out uh, stage time to people who need stage time and we're good at uh, finding the people who need more stage time and getting them more stage time and, and we've developed programs that help teach them various aspects and, and, and they may not even realize that we're teaching them these things but um, yeah I, I like to think we have a little subtle effect like a like a whirlpool kind of effect you know like a little deep eddy effect Yeah, but yeah it's it is what it is. I'm 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 very pleased with with my job, and um, I don't know if anybody anywhere does what I do. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not like I make a ton of money, but to to be able to create my own kind of dream job has has been pretty cool. So. Well, and to back up a little bit, the the role you've got at Comedy Works as new talent coordinator, which I think is sort of your official. Yeah, you know what's title. funny is I I made up that title, and, and I was going to ask you where did that role come from? Was there yeah. a predecessor, or did you walk in and say, "Hey, I've got this neat idea, let's give it a shot"? Uh, no, there's there's always been somebody who has been in charge of uh, amateur talent. Um, 
I'm going to forget some names, but the, the earliest one I knew was a guy named Don Becker, who was brilliant, a brilliant comedian, uh, but also a little crazy, just like like he, like he, he, he literally threw himself in front of a train at one point. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, he lost an arm in that. But, yeah, he's that, and he was in on the scene for a long time. Uh, he only died about five, six years ago, and it was just the thing where he fell in his home, that kind of thing. Um, uh and he was he would drive off comics he, his he was like one of those um i don't want to say comedy snobs but one of those guys who just like elevated comedy to the point where if anybody didn't live up to that standard then they were awful and they had to leave yeah. you know and so he would he would i had to hear stories about him making people cry like oh it's like you know what i can't believe you did that on my stage you know and and and, and while I, I understand, I, I get that he had lofty goals, and 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 we have lofty goals too at Comedy Works. We 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 still have that, but uh, not to the point where we're like trying to crush anybody's flower. Like that that that's a comedy. That's a Wendy Curtis quote. You know, we're yeah. not, we're not looking to crush anybody's flower. But you know, I think that's one of the things that I that I uh, so much appreciated about you is I think in in the comedy world and just human nature, it's hard to get honest feedback if you're doing something where you're really putting yourself out there. Mm. Friends and family are always going to say, "Oh, you were so funny and that was so much fun." And you were one of the few people who was able to in a in a constructive, productive way give give feedback, give honest, open feedback. And so that was, you know, again, that's another element where, and I've said this many, many times to, to many, many people is you were one of the few people in, in my comedy life where you'd say, I just, I didn't get that tag. I don't know where you were going with that. Yeah. And that was so helpful. Not necessarily that you were always right or omnipotent, no. but just the fact that you would offer that feedback was always really, really important. Yeah. I, um, I worry about that. I worry about that. Uh, that, that I'm going to give somebody a note like that, like, oh, I didn't, I didn't understand that setup or whatever like that. Um, and it'll just turn out that I'm dumb. <laughs> you know, that they're, like, they're like, well, no, this was in the news. And, like, and they turn around and everybody's like, yeah, we all knew that. And I'm like, I didn't get it. I'm dumb. You know? Uh, so I'm always scared to give, uh, I'm, I'm always scared to give notes on content. Uh, I, to me, it's, I, I always try to focus on structure and how things are put together, but, um, and whether or not, whether they're communicating an idea or not, like if the idea is clear or unclear. Um, and, uh, gosh, nine tenths of what I tell people is just, it's editing really. It's more like, gosh, you've got so much weight in that joke that it can't carry. Yeah. Um, and I, I feel sometimes like my notes get repetitive and I, I worry about that too. I just don't want to be a, like a hectoring father figure, like you kids and your long jokes. I don't want to be that guy. Right. Right. Uh, so I, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, it's a fine line. It's, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm tactful at the very least. Um, I'm tactful. Yeah. So do you think that the, the situation at comedy works in terms of that being, I think arguably one of the premier clubs in, in the country. And again, I've heard that multiple times from, from mm -hmm. multiple sources. How come that isn't replicated more in terms of specifically for the new talent where comedy works invests a lot of time and energy. Wow. And I suspect ultimately money one way or another into the new talent. Pool. Yeah. Why don't you think that that's a common practice at every comedy club in, in the country? Uh, that's, well, that's a good question. Um, 
<sighs> I think I think you there, it requires uh, um, a kind of vision, you know, a kind of like long term goal. I think many people in the comedy industry, um, I hate to say it, are are not in it for the long term. Uh, they're in it to get their little strike and have their little place. And um, and I think a lot of people, there's some people who've like retired in the comedy clubs. Like, I'm just going to do this until I die. <laughs> right. and, and so this idea of them developing anything, that's not really what their goal is either. Um, so I, th I think a lot of it has to do with just the goal of the clubs in the scene. Um, like, uh, like Oklahoma City, like Oklahoma City never really had a scene. We, we there were like four or five guys who would do it on a regular basis, but on any, any given open mic night, I could tell you what the jokes were going to be. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, I, it, part of what I was trying to do in Denver and and, and still trying to do is. To, develop what I wish I had had you know like gosh you know it would have been so helpful to me at this stage of my career if somebody had said this to me you yeah know? and and that's what I'm trying to focus on and I don't know maybe yeah I don't know maybe it's just my daddy issues coming through I don't know <laughs> well I'm gonna kind of Tarantino the interview a little bit going back to you uh you got your start in stand-up in 80 1986 86 uh in fact last week was my 30th 30th anniversary. 30th anniversary of doing comedy. March 5th, March 5th 86. That is fantastic. So what was the a, first... A Wednesday night. <laughs> um, and I have a friend who lives in Colorado Springs who was at that show. No way. She was at that very first show. Oh my gosh. Uh, there were eight people. Uh, it was a comedy club called Joker's Comedy Club. Um, it was the second incarnation of it. I, I was aware that there had been a Joker's Comedy Club previously in a different location, but it had closed before I even got a whiff of it. Um, but the club uh, reopened uh, literally two days after I turned 21. So kind of like I took that as a sign. Uh, it was in a strip mall uh, that, had a, that was anchored by a grocery store. <laughs> Um, Edgy. And, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, and it was a, a source of many jokes, many bad road jokes, uh, because uh, it was part of... It used to be, before Albertsons, they were Skaggs. So it was a Skaggs. Uh, and the, the club itself used to, was in a building that used to be a, a pizza place. It was uh, Shotgun Sam's. Uh, and it had a drive-thru. Like the offices and the kitchen had a drive-thru. Um, and there were like many times when I would go to pick up a check and I would just go through the drive-thru <laughs> and it would hand me a check. Um, uh, and it was, uh, it wasn't set up very well. Like the, the bar was in the showroom. Oh, wow. So it was at the back of the room, but there were still times when they would like, you know, hit the blender and you could hear it, you know, and you yeah. just had to work with it. Uh, and it was a long room. It was one of those kind of like the stages on one side, and it was just a long hall. And on the other end of the hall is the bar. And they'd kind of raised it up on the sides a little bit. Uh, there were, uh, if I remember correctly, eight people in the audience the night I went on the yeah. first time, uh, including my friend Mary. Uh, and... Um, and there were like four comics in the back. <laughs> and um, the guy who ran the place, a guy named Gary, oh God, I wish I could remember his last name. He was, he was the classic example of a guy who wanted to be a comic, but really ran a bar instead. Right. <laughs> you know, but really, he's good at running a bar, but really probably shouldn't dabble in comedy. Um, and he introduced me, and I stood probably a good 
good three feet behind the microphone. Like I just I left it in the stand and I just stood like I was like singing or something, like it was going to be an opera or something. And I'm just telling jokes and you could, I could see the people leaning in, just like, what? Um, but I got through it and I, I had my little stupid jokes. And I, I, um, something about, there was one th- thing about getting married, if I remember correctly. Like if I wanted abuse like this, I'd get married or something. <laughs> Uh, I had a Pinto joke. Oh my God, I had a Pinto joke. It's like 1986. It was dated in 1986. And I'm doing it. Yeah, that joke was old in 1980. And I'm so. Were you a fan of comedy? What was it about getting up on stage to do stand up? I I was a fan of stand up, but um, it was weird. I was always a fan of just comedy and, you know, in in general. And uh, I'd taken theater classes, and I and I'd uh, done some improv, and I I loved improv. Um, and then when I got out of when I graduated high school, I didn't have an outlet for that, and so I joined a, a sketch comedy group. I through this local theater I used to do stuff with. They were putting together a sketch comedy group, and I couldn't wait to join. And I thought everybody was going to be as excited about it as me, and it was just like me and like seven theater people who thought this would be a good exercise you know and I came in and I had like a notebook I'd written like I'd written like 10 sketches you know because and they're like oh we just thought we'd improvise and blah 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 but they would do sketches uh, and so and they started to lean on me because oh he was the only one writing sketches um and I would, I, so I got pretty good at that. And, and then after a while, I was like, why am I writing for other people? Because <laughs> right. I'd write these sketches and I, I'd let some actor go up there and ruin it. And I'd be like, oh man, like if you'd said it like this, that probably would have worked, you know? Um, and like I said, so at 21, I, I hit 21 in a comedy club opened. And I was like, oh, well, you know, I've been writing jokes all along so were you able to kind of call from the sketches to kind of get those first a little pieces bit. of material a little bit you know i think i think all theater people run into that uh, obstacle that you 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 want to perform stand-up right. comedy like you're not doing stand-up comedy you're performing your stand-up comedy so like i've written this joke and it's very precise and it's prosaic and and i've got this i've got to deliver it in a certain way and um, and it makes your act uh, very stiff and and very rigid, like I like I'm a thespian and I am on stage telling jokes, um, and so it kind of takes a lot of the organic out of it, where like you're actually trying to make a connection with somebody in the audience, and and the people feel like oh they're talking over me, uh, and so I had a lot of that early on. Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, after you first started in in '86 in front of eight people mm-hmm. and four comics, yeah. At what point? Did it feel like this is this is what I'm going to do now? Oh gosh, uh, not for a long time. Yeah, um, I was very lucky because at the time, this, it was the middle of the comedy boom, 1986, uh, and clubs were popping up everywhere. So Oklahoma City was just another example. Boom, here's a club, and then boom, uh, Tulsa opened up a year later, um, and they had uh, a demand for comics, but very few comics. So here they are in Oklahoma City. They need MCs. There's me and four guys in the back, you know. So I, I literally, the, I think the third time I performed, the guy was like, "Oh, he's going to keep coming back," and he offered me a, he offered me a week. Wow. And I, and and so I got an MC week like I think two months after I started. 
Uh, and I was totally not ready. I had no idea what I was doing. So I, I just came and watched a bunch of shows and tried to see how the other guys were doing it. But I still didn't know what I was doing. Uh, and it was Tommy Sledge. I remember the headliner, Tommy Sledge. Wow. The stand-up detective <laughs> who uh, is a, a great guy. and uh, I um, learned a lot from that guy. So N nothing but love for Tommy Sledge. Yeah. Um, uh, but I remember he, uh, the guy, he goes, uh, come back in the back. So he, he takes me back in the office where the drive-thru is. <laughs> and he, uh, he goes, okay, yeah, we, thought we want you to work this week. So it would have been like May so-and-so with uh, Tommy Sledge. You'll do uh, eight shows. Back then it was like Wednesday through uh, Sunday. Uh, and uh, what, uh, what do you think? We'll pay you like uh, 250 and he just has it. He like he's it with a question mark at the end. Like like is this okay? Two fifty. Yeah. And he could have said, "Look, we're going to give you a, a a bad hand job in the parking lot for the weekend." And I would have been like, "I'm a I'm, I'm a professional comic. I am winning." Because <laughs> he he literally he was offering he offered me more money than uh, I would get for two weeks working at the record store. I was working at a record store at the time. So like what? Huh? You know, for doing what I would love to do. I mean, did you have aspirations that I'm going to get paid at some point no, for this, or that no. was just gravy? No, I had no idea. Yeah, I had no idea. Just the thought of, uh, oh, really? Hmm? What? That's crazy. And uh, so, just out of the gate, here's like money for this, and then it was money that I was going to get every six weeks because there weren't any other comics, right? You know, so as long as I kept doing it and kept working at it, and I'm like, all right. You know, so it was like this insane reward system that was set up for me uh, that I wouldn't have gotten if I'd lived in a bigger town, you right, know, where right. there'd been more comics. So I kind of lucked out by the fact that there weren't, there wasn't anybody doing it. So did you find yourself advancing almost too quickly? Did no, you way too quickly. Yeah. Way too quickly. Um, I got a road gig. I got a road gig like eight months in uh, to go to Amarillo, Texas, of all places, uh, Jollies. Uh, and Jolly's was the same situation. It was Wednesday through Sunday. Uh, and the MC, oh, but Jolly's on Wednesday, Thursday, and Sunday, <laughs> because they're weeknights, the MC also had to stick around after the show and uh, run karaoke. Oh, my God. He had to run karaoke. Uh, and they're, and they're, I, I still remember their hook. Their hook was they were trying to get people in by saying, you could come in and record a demo. <laughs> <laughs> So I had to throw out that line of bullshit to people like, hey, come back tomorrow. If you have a song prepared, we'll tape it. You got a demo. Oh, God. <laughs> was there one success story that came uh, out of the karaoke no, night? The, uh, the only thing I knew out of that was there was always some uh, some lady, uh, God bless it. It was always a different woman every night who would come up and, and like they felt like it was their civic duty to sing uh, Amarillo by Morning. Which is this country song, but it was always so far out of the range, like so high <laughs> that it would, it turned in, like, you, you ever heard like bad church music? Oh my God. And I'm like, well, hey, and you got a tape of that. <laughs> you know, come on. After. Oh my God. Oh, and look, this is a, this is a really interesting story. That first week, uh, this is a true story. The first week I worked with a guy named Dan Merriman. He's a Texas legend, uh, still out on the road, still out there. Uh, and that week, he, God, he taught me so much about being on the road. Oh, I know him so much. Uh, but that week, he met uh, 
one of, he met this waitress at the club and he married her and they are still married. I I worked with Dan Merriman the week he met his wife at a club That's on the road. That's incredible. Isn't that crazy? Oh my god. And so like every time he posts on Facebook about his anniversary, I'm like, I was there and he's like, I know, you know. Oh, it's so cool. That's nuts. And so um So how did your path go from Oklahoma City? Let's do a little swing through Amarillo, do some work okay. up until and then and now you're in Denver. Mm-hmm. How, how did that how did that happen? How well, did you okay. land in Denver? Um, so the club opens in Oklahoma City. Uh, and, of course, they need comics. Uh, and so they're drawing a lot of comics uh, from a couple of sources. Uh, w- uh, one from Texas. They're getting a lot of Texas comics coming up. Uh, you know, from Dallas and Houston. Uh, and Houston had a really vibrant scene back then. You know, that was like with, with Hicks and, right. and Kinnison, Kinnison was there. Yeah. And uh, Brett Butler was there. Um, and then uh, they were getting comics from Chicago. Uh, and then they were getting uh, they were getting comics from Denver, and so a lot of the Denver comics were coming down, like Matt Berry and Todd Jordan. Uh, and one of the very first guys I met and worked with was uh, Lewis Johnson, and Lewis is about my age, and um, and he was also a he was had, had a situation where he got a lot of success very early on, you know. Um, and so he became this great resource for me. You know, we came and hang out. We just hit it off. Uh, we were both writers. We both wrote a lot, so we had that in common. Um, and so he's like, "Hey, give me a call. I can. I think I can get you into this club." And sure enough, he got me into a comedy works uh, when they had a B room in Fort Collins. Right. So and my, that's the one Wendy was running at the time. Is that or she, she, she was had, the manager there? She had. Uh, she started there. I started doing comedy in '86. She started at that club in 1986. Okay. I got there in 1987. So she had been there less than a year. Um, I, I think she had, was just a just in a server and was still doing door duties. She had, wasn't in management yet. Gotcha. But you could tell that she was going to be running things soon. Yeah. Uh, but we, she and I also had a lot in common because she was a theater major and I had done, done a lot of theater, obviously. Uh, and we both love musicals. So we talked about musicals and stuff. <laughs> and it was weird. It's weird the things you connect over. Yeah. But she also saw that I wrote and that I was, you know, trying to get better at what I was doing. Uh, but even though I was terrible, I can't watch the tapes from back then. They're so bad. <laughs> They're so, so bad. Oh my God! I've been I've been looking at tapes lately because my 30th anniversary, and they just <laughs> it 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 is so humbling to to look back at that and think, man, I was trying to sell people that. Now, in what way though? What do you like? What do you see that that makes you cringe? Because because I suspect it's, if you showed it to somebody, they'd be like, that's that's fine. Why are you? Kick, it's you know, it's so formulaic. Yeah. Uh, it's so you know, uh, uh, insert slot a. Insert tab A into slot kind B. Kind of IKEA comedy. You know, this plus this equals ha ha. <laughs> and it's so, and it all the jokes are just one note jokes, and they're all um, there's very few tags, so they're like long setups with just one bad punchline at the end. <laughs> and if they don't like it, well, there I am. You know, here's another one. <laughs> Hope you'll stick with me for this long thing. Uh, and and um, and a bad act outs. And uh, and you can see me imitating my heroes. Like I was really into Dennis Miller then, so you could see me like almost shaking my head on every punchline, like <laughs> Dennis Miller used to do. Uh, and it, oh, it's just painful to watch. And I and I know like probably most civilians would look at that and just go, oh yeah, look, oh that's endearing. Right, right. But I look at it and just it's like somebody's kicking me in the balls. Yeah. It, it hurts so bad. I 
like I said, at a pinto joke. <laughs> right. I, I just bit about. Oh God, I almost remember the thing. It was um, um, about how they how they put uh, letters at the end of uh, a car's name to make it sound fancy. Like oh like, oh it's a Ford you know it's a it's a Ford Focus LX you know I was like well what's an LX you know and and I said oh they should do that for uh, they should do that the uh, they should tell you something about the car with those like like you could have like the Ford Probe KY you know it was so such a, and then I had this horrible tag like uh, you know oh oh half of you think I'm talking about Kentucky. <laughs> So stupid. <laughs> those are good. And then um, I'm telling you right now, those hold up. Oh, and, and then, but the, the the third one, the third one, of course, the, the rule of threes. You yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So the, the, the third one was the uh, the Ford uh, Pinto TNT. <laughs> yes, get it? Yeah, because it blows good. up. Remember 1977? You watched the news, right? <laughs> <laughs> I know it was nine years ago. Come on. Oh, God. Huh? All right, oh, man. I got I got I got so many notes on here. It and like me. I said, I you know I've always been a, a, a fan of your of your comedy, and then um, I'm kind of enamored with comedy works and what they do for comedians and the opportunities they gave me when I was doing comedy. I'm I'm dumb in a smart way or smart in a dumb way. I can't quite figure out which what my comedy style would be called. But I it's I'd say dumb in a smart way. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a dumb joke, but it sounds smart, right? <laughs> and, and, and I and I think you're you know the one thing you know for young comics who go through Comedy Works and have an opportunity to work either stage downtown or the South Club, just the energy and the feel of that room. It's a true comedy club. It's yeah. got all of the trappings of a real comedy club, and so to work with people like you and then also the national headliners who come through there, yeah. it gives it gives com. I, I think anyway for for me personally, it gives comedians hope for lack of a better word that there there is a path forward if you keep uh, at it and you're yeah. good and you work hard and you don't fuck up on the the mechanics of being a comedian yeah. you can get there you know the um the mountain metaphor is not lost on me uh because we're here in denver so you know we we see the mountains every day uh, but it 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 helps you to climb when you see the people at the top of the mountain doing so well, yeah, you know, um, in Oklahoma, you know, I would see people coming through, um, and they would tell me stories about the mountains, <laughs> right? But you don't really see it, you know. You just you see some road guy, and and you have to look up to that until you find out that there's better. Uh, and that, and that was a big thing about Denver was coming here and seeing the better. Yeah, you know, it was one of those markets where I would see that comedy done at the next level and realize, oh, there's more to this. Yeah. I can't just be satisfied with being a road dog. There's 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 other levels and I should be aspiring to that instead of like, oh, I'm just gonna be good enough to do these horrible one nighters across the Midwest. Right, right. You know, and and so I actually had to get off the road. There was a point where I was like, you know, this I've learned what I can on the road and now it's teaching me bad things. And so I, I felt like I had to get off the road if I was going to be better. Yeah. So so this sounds like a cheesy, this is your life kind of question. But at this stage in your career, just just past your 30th anniversary of, of being yeah. a professional stand-up comedian and mentor to <laughs> yeah. hundreds of... 30 of, plus of, five. Yeah. Hundreds of, of uh, up-and-coming comedians. What are you most proud of when you look back at your, oh, your career? Proud? Oh, it's not, it's not a word comedians use often. I don't think, you know, 
here's here's what I'm proud of. I'm 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 proud that I've been able to find a way uh, to. I've been able to uh, carve out a a little corner for myself. Uh, I think that's, I think that's something that all artists are looking to do. You're, 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 you're trying to find your niche and you're trying to find your audience. Um, and, um, I always had kind of a, a, from a very early on, I thought at some point I would be a school teacher and I tried that and it just wasn't for me because, the kids weren't as interested in education as I was, you know? And I, I thought, oh, they'll all be good students like me. And no, no, it's not like that. It's terrible. It's the opposite of that. <laughs> um, but then to get here and find a situation where like, wait, I can teach something that I love to people who really want to learn this. Uh, and that'll be a way for me to give back, but it'll also be a way for me to stay connected, a way for me to to still do comedy but not have to go on the road and do these horrible gigs that I hate and even though it doesn't pay a lot you know I'm I'm poor um it it was a way for me to stay connected to comedy um without having to be to sacrifice without having to sacrifice quality or lowering standards you know it's like oh wow I'm I've got a home that has expectations and so that will keep me sharp. Uh, and as long as it keeps me sharp, then I can pass that on to others too. It's like, hey, you know, hopefully they'll see me working and see, oh, that's what you're supposed to do. I hope. Yeah. Because yeah, I, I like to lead by example. I, I, gosh, I hate giving people directions. <laughs> I hate telling people when their jokes are bad. <laughs> oh, man, that was... <clears throat> Unless they're assholes, and then I love telling them. <laughs> And I love telling them. Right, right. Oh, really? Nobody laughed at that joke. <laughs> oh, man, that was, that's, that's such a, a, a beautiful sentiment. And I think, you know, comedians and, and artists get into whatever they do for various reasons, and they're all very personal. And I think being able to identify what that is and being true to that yeah. can oftentimes be harder than the art itself. Well, there was a point, oh, God, and this was at the end of my road career, when... Uh, like a lot of the clubs I wanted to work at collapsed, you know, they was the boom subsided and clubs were closing and I'm like, Oh man, how am I going to make a living now? Uh, and there was a point when I thought, um, God, I've kind of lost my point there. I've, I didn't think it was going to work. Yeah. You know, there was a point where I, I thought, well, you know, I'm going to find something else. Was it just the practical element of making a living? Yeah. Where the passion was still there as far passion as... passion was there, but I just didn't know how to get to that next level. Yeah. Um, and a, another comic told me, says, well, you know what you need to do? You need to find a community. You need to find a place where there are other people like you. Because that's the problem. You're in Oklahoma right now, and there's nobody else doing what you want to do. Yeah. Um, and, and find other people who want to do and, and and suck it up and get a day job. You know, but if you really love it, you know, find a place where you can do it and you don't, um, you know, you don't have to rely on it for your living. Uh, And taking that burden off of it, of like, this is my, uh, not just my, uh, my desire, but it's my, uh, my living, you know, by taking that off the plate. Right. It, it freed me up so much artistically. Yeah. 
Uh, and it was such a weight and such a burden off my mind because like, oh, you know, now I can just do it for the love of doing it and I can be as weird and it doesn't matter if people, I want people to love it, but, um, and, and then the idea of going to another place where there are other people like that, where I could do that in front of, you know, yeah. um, you know, it just seemed like, I don't know why it had never occurred to me, but there's something about something so insular about Oklahoma where you're there, you know, and you're like, oh. You know, you think, oh, well, this is what there is in the world. Oh, sure, and yeah. you don't realize that there's other things out in the right, world. Right, right, you know? right. And so Denver was a huge part of that. I had I had two markets where I felt that way, and Denver was one, and Austin was the other. Yeah. There was such a beautiful club in Austin. Oh, my God. And I worked with Robert Schimmel for the first time oh in Austin. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. So, yeah. So just getting to see that again on another right, level. Right. It was, oh, it was so inspiring. Oh, and the other thing about that week was... The idea of getting off the road was also the idea of that I was going to stop chasing fame uh, because that was another anchor, another thing that I felt like was weighing me down creatively. Yeah, was like this idea that I had to write for fame. Yeah, you know, uh, one was writing for money, the other was writing for fame. Yeah, uh, rather than writing for what I truly thought was funny. And I think it's so hard or potentially can be difficult to separate fame from success. Oh yeah. Everybody thinks that fame is success. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it, and it, 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 it's a form of success, right? But it's not the ultimate success. Right. Um, like I'd be curious to see throughout your career in, in, you know, even just in general, how many artists or whether it's music, comedy acting whatever it is where they're famous and successful but it's not at all what they want to be doing because at some point they've given up on themselves to a degree absolutely um well steve martin talks about that in his his biography yeah where he he talks about you know he goes out is that born standing up born standing up and he goes out uh he gets his gig it's like a uh, outdoor concert venue and he goes out in his suit and before he can even say anything they're yelling his punchlines at him (laughs) And it, and it was the it, it, they and it didn't matter what he did yeah. and 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 Patton Oswalt also talked about I think on his last uh, hour special where he got hired to do this gig at this uh, insane resort in, right. in I, I Washington somewhere yeah. where and it didn't matter what he said King of Queens he's like bibbity bobbity <laughs> blah 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 and they're like you're hilarious right and it's and and it's there they're there for the fame right right not for the 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 craft or the art and he's right there was a part of him that's like i could just do this and make a fine living you know but i can't do that i couldn't do that and and to me it almost seemed limiting and it's been kind of almost confirmed by some of the people i've worked with up here like like i i got to see dave Chappelle at very like some different levels of his fame right right like like i got to work with him right before Chappelle show and he was already pretty famous then but not the way he was like three years later. Right. And the way his demeanor changed, the way he had to do business changed, the way he had to approach a crowd changed. It all like fame fucked it, you know? And, and for a couple of years, he really had a real problem because it was the Steve Martin thing again, where they were yelling out stuff from Chappelle show at him. Right. And he's like, look, that's not what I'm doing now. Well, and it's amazing the reaction. And I don't know the ins and outs of what the circumstances were with the Chappelle show, but from a, 
a casual fan's point of view, he walked away from a big pile of cash yeah, yeah. to maintain his integrity. Right. And the reaction was like, what is he doing? Is he crazy? This opportunity yeah. once in a life, blah, blah, blah. But the fact that he had the balls to go, you know what? I no. I don't want to limit what I'm capable of doing. Because he knows. He knows it. I keep going back to that mountain thing. Like, uh, like I get to a certain point in the mountain, and I think I've achieved a peak. And when I get to that peak, I, it's only then that I can see the next peak. Right, you know? right. And he knows that there's more. Yeah. And people are like, no, stay here at this level. It's heaven. Yeah. And he's like, no, you don't understand. Yeah. You know? And it and it takes there's a certain kind of vision that you can only get at a certain point, you know? And and certain people have that. Like, you know, that's why people didn't understand Miles Davis at first. Because he could see like three stops down the road. Right, and and right. they're like, no, we love what you're doing here. Yeah. And, and oh, I'm sure musicians, that's got to be a blessing and a curse. Like, can you imagine, can you, like, how is it for Huey Lewis right now? Right. <laughs> Like you do, like you, like you think Huey, like yeah, I want to do, I want a new drug again. I want to sing that again. You yeah, know? yeah. Or do you think he's like, man, you know, I just want to play my harmonica and just sit on the beach. And I was talking to somebody on the podcast last week about Tom Jones, and uh, like a last a couple of years ago, he put out a blues album, just like nobody knew about it. He just put it out on this thing, and it's brilliant. It's like so good. Yeah. And it's so unexpected. And you know he's wanted to do that for years. And I bet it, and you know if he did that in concert, people would not like it. <laughs> right. But it's so good. Yeah. And it's gotta be ugh. so as a comedian, I that I could see Chappelle going through that same thing. Right, you know? right. They're just yelling, Yeah, Rick James bitch, and he's like, Oh, please stop. <laughs> So yeah, uh, abandoning the quest for fame and abandoning the quest for money or trying to find a different way to make money yeah, while still doing what I love uh, kind of became my thing. Nice. And it's, and it's kind of worked out for me. I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's the path for everybody because, you know, a lot of people want to do this for fame. Right, right. Uh, and I will say the one thing, fame is useful uh, if you want to do other things. Um, like, like right now, like somebody I really look up to as far as career-wise is like uh, Bobcat Goldthwait. Oh, yeah, where he's been able to reinvent himself. And because he took his money uh, from doing stand-up comedy, and, and then he would hang out on sitcoms. He would do, get roles in sitcoms, and then he would hang out and watch the director and talk to the director because he was curious about that. Right. And then he used his money from stand-up comedy to fund his first movie, uh, Shakes, Shakes the, Clown, the Clown, yeah, which was, was this cult hit. Oh. But that's what he does now. He goes out on the road and makes all this money uh, doing stand-up. He takes gigs directing sitcoms, right? Uh, including he did one for uh, those who can't, right? Our right. local guys, uh, and he uses that money to fund uh, these movies he wants to make. And, yeah. and he's perfectly content. He is perfectly happy, and and I I totally admire that. Yeah, you know, because he didn't compromise his art. He funds it completely himself. And that's a great example, like you said, of leveraging that fame. Yeah. Where he can kick a door in because he's Bobcat, right. and hey, I'm just going to stand right. here and watch you direct because I want to learn how to do that. He couldn't do that exactly. if he didn't have just a little bit of fame. And yeah. So that's where fame is a good thing. But then, like you know, if I go uh, go to a strip bar with Dave Chappelle and notice that he can't ever set his drink down. Oh my god! Because he's afraid somebody will put something in his drink. Then then you see that fame has this other ugly side too. Right. Right. So. 
Well, that's a weird place to end the podcast, Deacon, but I think the show has started and you've got to go entertain the troops here in a minute. Holy shit, we started the show. Man, it was an honor. And, uh, it was and, fun talking. Yeah, it was good to catch up with you, man. Hey, thanks for having me. All right. So there you have it, veteran stand-up comedian and one of my personal comedy mentors, Deacon Gray. My sincere thanks to Deacon for being on the show. As you can tell, he was an important part of my comedy life, and I'm grateful for everything he did for me. Our interview did run a bit long, but 30 years is a long time in the comedy business, and I imagine we only scratched the surface. All my best to Deacon, and I'll look forward to catching up with him again soon. Thank you to Eric and the folks at Looney's Comedy Corner for their continued support. And as always, thank you for listening to In the Springs. If you're enjoying the podcast, take a second to post a positive review on iTunes or wherever you consume your podcast media. Until next time, I'm Ryan Lowry, and we'll see you again right here in the Springs. Springs.